Thank you again for uh, this illuminating and passionate introduction. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is fortunately not the end of the map. This is the beginning of the map. And we're now going to take it further by, by systematically looking at the different phases in, in Kathy's life, starting with his upbringing and his politicization, then uh, going towards his activism, uh, in, his, in his early teens, uh, and uh, then the, the trials, then uh, Robben Island, Coastwood, and end off with some general reflections about the implications of all of these things and the lessons that we have to learn from this period in our history and from, from his and his colleagues' experiences uh, for ourselves in South Africa and for the future. Um, and uh, if you don't want to maybe sit down to, uh, to uh, take it leisurely and to ask, uh, to start off by asking Kathy first of all, to tell us something more about your, your upbringing in, in Swaziland, in, in the, in the Northwest. Uh, Kathy hails from Swaziland, which is one of the, one of the deep rural areas in the Northwest, as, as many of you would know. Maybe some of you already also come from there. Uh, it is also currently still reputed to be a highly conservative rural area and a predominantly Afrikaans area. So, Cathy, uh, tell us a little bit about your upbringing uh, in Swaziland and, and how that influenced your views and, and your politicization. Uh, well, when time you came for me to go to school, I could not be admitted into the white school. I could not be admitted into the Africa. There was no Indian school because the community was too small. So at the age of eight or nine, I had to be sent away all the way to Johannesburg to, to school. And that was the first time that I saw the inside of the school. So, it, one starts asking, because as children, you don't know color. With our immediate neighbors, on the one side was the bank manager, the bank was uh, the mayor. Uh, I don't want to go into details of how we came to live in that situation. But what I'm saying is that we paid we didn't know color. Children don't know color. They play, they quarrel, they make up. <coughs> so at that age, when I'm sent away to Johannesburg, at the age of eight, you start questioning, why can't I go to the school of my friends? It's not politics. It's a simple question a child asks. And from there, in the area where I was staying, there was a youth club uh, run by the Young Communist League, and young people liked films and picnics and so forth. So I was drawn into the youth club from there to the Young Communist League, from there to the Indian Congress, Indian Youth Congress, and depend on and on until I landed in prison. Okay. Now, one of the comments that you make in that. Uh, chapter about the robbery. Uh, one, one of the, the interesting comments for me that you made in, 
in that uh, chapter on, on your upbringing in Swaziland was the fact that generally, if I interpreted uh, what you wrote correctly, generally there were very good relationships uh, socially and in the business field where your father was uh, uh, the owner of, of a shop there in, in Swaziland. And uh, many of your clients were, were uh, Afrikaner white uh, people from the farms or from the town. And generally there, there was a very good relationship. But a little bit later, you, you, you had a comment that uh, it was interesting that um, those people who in your personal interactions uh, had maintained very good relationships with you, sometimes were found when they make political statements uh, or when they become active in politics uh, they, they literally changed character they, they became very racist in that process but my question to you is how, how do you explain that how do you explain that uh, uh, because i think that is, that is a very interesting aspect and a very controversial aspect of, of south african society the whole racial relationship, and then also the the political relationships. It's difficult to explain that, but I think one of the problems of apartheid is people could not come to know one another. They were in separate kettles. So the perception among people who don't live in the township, African township was all blacks are criminals. That's how people grow up. Say, talk of Lanazi and talk of Sawai next to each other. I'm just giving a, an example. The youngsters in Sawai will grow up thinking all Indians are rich and all Indians are white. What they don't know is that Indians also put part of the as whites do. They don't know that. Among the Indian Jews, all Africans are criminals. Those perceptions were there. Fortunately, those are dying out. As young people are getting more and more educated. But that's how uh, things were at that time. Uh, of course, things started changing after April 94. We've still got some way to go, but uh, in, in, in getting one United Nations, uh, we have some way to go, but we have made considerable progress. I, I thought you forgot about me. No. That was a good one. Thank you. <laughs> um, welcome to everybody. Uh, the, the book is really uh, a fascinating read. Um, it's almost a chronological sequence of, um, of Umkati's life. So let me, let me zero in on what you call in the book the period of activism, becoming active. And I should just share with all of you that Kathy uh, almost bumped into the um, Youth League uh, and the Young Communist League, well, the, the Young Communist League, at the age of 14. 12. 12. 12. Um, so, you know, from a very early age, activism. So in the 1940s, so I want to build up on something here. As early as the 1940s, you meet Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu. And throughout the book, they play a profound 
um, role in your life. They have a tremendous and profound impact on your life. So much so that during the funeral of your um, comrade, the first uh, president of a democratic South Africa, in a very, very moving speech, as I shared with you earlier, you describe Nelson Mandela um, and say you lost a brother, and you describe Walter Sisulu and say when he died, you lost a father figure, and then you ask this really tough question, what am I to do? What's going to happen to me? Just explain to me the role of these two and other senior figures uh, in your life. There's something about the values and principles that you stood for that is, that is absolutely remarkable. Well, first of all, I met both these uh, men in the 40s, more or less the same time. But I can remember exactly when I met Medina. He was a law student at RITS together with Ismail Mills and Jayant Singh, whom I knew. And they had a flat in, in Market Street, Ismail Mills had. So sometimes after law lectures, Madiba came uh, with them. And that's how I met him for the first time, 67 years ago, 1946. At that time, there were so few in, in, at university. So when you see a black student, you are, and I'm at school, you are in awe of him. You know, and you want to be like him one day. But what uh, the abiding thing of, about Madiba is the way he related to me as a youngster, he's a university student. But he made me feel equal. His conversations with me made me so comfortable, so much so that I could go back and boast to my fellow students. I met this university student who, who treated me as an equal. Well, that was the beginning of, of my contact with him. With Walter, I met him more or less at the same time. Now, my father died when I was 40, 1943. But even then, when he was alive, he was out in the country all alone. And I met Walter. I can't remember how, but I met him. If anybody knew Walter, he was naturally a father to everybody. And in prison, right across the political spectrum, Walter was a father. But to me, it was very special. I won't go into details. My relationship with Walter and Master Sulu became so close that one of their, uh, or their, to give it a little bit of explanation, somebody who was released from Roman Island, uh, and he went to greet the Sisulus. And of course, Master Suru took him up to stay with him. He then changed his name to Sasuru. His daughter was born. What does he name her? Officially, Kathrada Sasuru. 
Hát én a hátkönyvvel az az But fortunately, my nickname is Ken. But unfortunately, that child died last year. So what I'm saying, my relationship with Walter, now I could go to him with the most personal things. And I will bring up, expose my own personal things. I got into a relationship with a white woman. Before and after. <laughs> after the show, after it wasn't illegal. Before that, it was illegal. And I often think if I got caught with her, I would have got six months. But I waited and I got five. <laughs> anyway, so when I started my relationship, I went to work. There's nobody else I could consult. I said, look, I've got this relationship. If I get caught, it's going to impact negatively on the organization. What do I do? He said, look, the Immorality Act, the Mixed Managers Act, are racial acts. And we are fighting all of my thoughts. Just be careful what you are doing. And if you get arrested, we'll be with you. So that was the father. And that's the type of thing I could confide in him. So many other things. Of course, present, maybe much more. It cements relationships like nothing else. The last seven years I stayed with Walter, just the four of us, in one step. And there I could see the man in Walter. It just increased my love for him. Just the four of us in one step. And Andrew and Raymond and the other. And my was taken away from us. And then my love for him grew. And my admiration <coughs> for him as an expert in the history of the liberation movement. But I could go on and on about him. Oh, and I, we have to bring the audience in uh, pretty soon. Let me just ask you um, one final question before we open up for, for the. Um, participants to, to join us in conversation. Um, given the setting where we're sitting today, at a university, we're having this discussion at a university, uh, all of you on Robben Island, immediately after the Ravonia trial, and literally for, the, for those long, what some would consider dark decades, you placed a very high premium on education. And there are two things that stands out from the uh, from the memoirs, is all of you studying and educating yourselves, uh, even formally acquiring qualifications. But fascinatingly, you almost on the island started a political school. Of course, you couldn't call it an INC school, certainly not a Communist Party school, because the sentences could have been extended. It's clear from, from the book. But, but talk to us just about the centrality of education then and, and relay a message to some of our young students today about the importance of education. Then again, our leadership was so insistent that people should study. But unfortunately, there were obstructions. There was a rule that if you want to register with an institution, a school, or a university, you had to have money. And that money must come from your own family. 
If the lawyers send you money, if the churches send you money, the Red Cross send you money, they send it back. So that meant that the vast majority of prisoners could not formally stand. We had among, you see, we were separated from the rest of the prison committee, about 25 of us, completely separated. So much so that President Zuma, Deputy President Motlante, they were there for 10 years. We never saw them. They never saw us. Uh, but coming back to studies, this meant that you had to now concentrate on informal studies. So fortunately and unfortunately for them, there were so many teachers among us, former teachers, and others who were educated. So they took it, you know, there was a, in our little section, uh, the late Professor Neville Alexander established what they called RITA, Robin Island Teachers Association. And among the us, there were three gentlemen from the transfer, completely illiterate. Completely. So there, Neville would take Governor Bailey, Governor of the teacher that you must see to it that these guys get lessons and others. So what I'm saying is that that happened right through, not only in our section but all, because more, uh, even among the communal cells where there were hundreds of prisoners, there were quite a number of illiterate or semi-literate people. May I just give two examples? A young man comes to prison at the age of 15, sentenced to 10 years. Fortunately, his parents could send him money. In the 10 years, he did his JC, his matric, his BA, started his BUS, completed it outside, completed law outside, and today he is the deputy. Judge President of the highest court in the country, the Constitution Court. Most of you know his name, Tikhan Mosedek. But that's the product of Robin Island. Now, fortunately, he could study. There came another young man with a standard two education, no money. He left Robin Island after 10 years without a certificate because he couldn't study properly. He got all his education from fellow prisoners. He left prison without a certificate, but an educated man. President Zoom. <laughs> so you find many of them, you know, educated on Ramadan. As you said, we placed a lot of emphasis on education. And, and, and we succeeded there. Nobody left Roman Island illiterate. 